0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and welcome to another episode of Foreign Exchanges. Hello out there, and thanks for checking out the podcast again. This is another in our irregular series of podcasts here at Foreign Exchanges where I interview people who are smarter than me and have written books about various interesting topics. Uh, Today, in a a few minutes here, we're going to be joined by Elizabeth Urban. Uh, Elizabeth is Associate Professor of History at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. She is also the author of Conquered Populations in Early Islam, Non-Arabs, Slaves and the Sons of Slave Mothers, a really excellent uh, book that looks at some of the early Periods in Islamic history, or really the earliest periods in Islamic history, and tries to uh, tease out the lives and experiences of some of the more marginalized, let's say, uh, liminal groups in that society. Um, I want to talk briefly, just give you a brief preview of what we're going to be talking about. There's a, a whole category of people. Uh, in early Islam, and and Elizabeth Elizabeth's book goes into to some detail about this, and we will get into it in the interview. But there's a category called Mawla or Mawali uh, is the plural in Arabic, uh, and this is a group that's traditionally regarded as uh, sort of non-Arab converts to Islam. Uh, but it comes out, the word comes out of a a type of slaveholder-slave relationships. So there is... Uh, when I was studying this stuff, uh, you know, way too long ago at this point, uh, it, it was taught that Mawali were these converts who came in from outside the Arab tribal system. And because there was no social mechanism set up for kind of how they would fit into the the new political entity that was developing around Islam, they were essentially made clients uh, of Arab tribes. What Elizabeth's research uh, gets at is that, that that's not really the the full story, that there is definitely some type of uh continuing unfree uh, aspect to this to the relationship that these these people had and it changes over time And so very early on when Islam is first uh, developing and everybody's sort of uh, looking at the Quran, uh, there is a different conception of Mawali, one that is maybe a little more ecumenical that means uh, you know anybody who has adopted the new uh, faith or the new religious, practice, I hesitate almost to say faith, because Islam was still developing uh, in this period. Um, and it it actually takes on a more societal meaning uh, as you go along, and and uh, the Umayyad dynasty comes around in uh, uh, sort of the second half of the 7th century, uh, and really tries to Arabize uh, this empire that they're building in, and, and create a privileged status for Arabs, it takes on more of a, a kind of repressive meaning. But in general, her book uh, treats the Mawali as part of uh, an entire category of what she calls unfree uh, peoples, a much broader category that, as the title suggests, includes uh, slave women, the sons of slave mothers, um, you know, and various, you know, various times and places within the Islamic world. This; These categories shift, uh so it's a it's a great book. It really offers a, a unique perspective uh on uh groups of people who who don't get a lot of attention obviously in the sources, so it's difficult to kind of tease out what, what was actually happening to them uh in this period. And she starts to get it, I think. Um, some some very interesting answers. Uh, Elizabeth, I, I've known for many years. Uh, we went to grad school together, actually, and so I'm, I'm really uh, f- thrilled to be able to talk to her uh, about this and uh, to direct you guys to her book, which again is Conquered Populations in Early Islam. If this is uh, the kind of thing that interests you, please check it out. I'll have a link in the show description. Uh, before we get into the interview... Uh, let me just offer my my pitch for foreign exchanges. If you are uh, already a, a reader of foreign exchanges, a subscriber, then, uh, you know, sorry for having to go through this. But if you are not, uh, if you're coming to this from some other place, uh, or if you haven't made the full jump to paid subscription of foreign exchanges, please do check out the site, uh, www.foreinexchanges.news. Uh, we cover uh, all manner of things, history, uh, international affairs, world news, all that good stuff, cheery, cheery topics all. Um, and uh, I think uh, if, if you're interested in those things, uh, you, you'll really find something of value there. Please check it out and consider becoming a subscriber and supporting the newsletter so I can keep doing, for example, interviews like this, uh, which hopefully uh, will be of interest. Uh, on that note, I'm going to stop rambling here and I'm going to bring Elizabeth in and we will get started with the interview. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Foreign Exchanges. It's Derek, as always, and I am joined, uh, very happy to be joined, really, by Elizabeth Urban, Associate Professor of History at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. She is also the pre-modern Book Review Editor for the International Journal of Middle East Studies and the author of Conquered Populations in Early Islam, Non-Arab Slaves and the Sons of Slave Mothers. Also, full disclosure, one of my favorite Uh, grad school colleagues. So I'm very happy to be speaking with her uh, and to have her on the show. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Derek. It's so good to see you again.
0: It really has been. It's been like years since we've talked. So uh, if that seeps into the conversation, I apologize, but uh, you just have to bear with us. Um, (laughs) So first of all, Elizabeth, congratulations on the book. It is excellent. Uh, People who are interested in understanding early Islamic society should absolutely check this book out and there will be, of course, a a link for people to do that uh, attached to this program. But let's start with the the basics. What attracted you to the topic of non-Arab slaves and the sons of slave mothers in early Islam? And when you got into that subject, what did you find was sort of the state of the field?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the way I got into the field is that basically every Graduate student or upper-level undergraduate student, when they're learning about early Islamic history and you know the career of Prophet Muhammad and then the Islamic conquests that you know uh, expanded the Islamic state throughout the Middle East, you hear this word mawla or you more often hear it Arabic word "mawali." And I'm sorry to have to use an Arabic term for an audience that I'm sure is not really comfortable with uh, Arabic or fluent in Arabic. But it's this term that can mean so many different things. But graduate students and undergraduates learn this term to mean non-Arab Muslims. And they're taught that the first Arab Muslim conquerors who created this empire in the Middle East were really mean to these guys and were chauvinists against these guys. And they didn't like the non-Arab Muslims. They were Arab chauvinists and that the Mawali, these non-Arab converts to Islam, were treated as second-class citizens until the glorious Abbasid Revolution of 750 CE, and the Abbasids were reportedly much more open and, and cosmopolitan, and they wanted to treat the Mawali as equals with Arab Muslims. So this was the story I heard The Mawali rose up and and helped to topple the first Umayyad empire and helped create this more cosmopolitan Abbasid empire. And when I was uh, trying to find a topic for my dissertation research, I came across this account in a source called uh, The History of Damascus by Ibn Asakir, 12th century author. And I was reading about the Umayyad caliphs and I came across this sentence that just said, the most loyal to the Umayyads were their Mawali. And I just thought, no, no, no. The Mawali are supposed to hate the Umayyads. The Umayyads are supposed to have mistreated the Mawali. Why are they here being treated as the most loyal to the Umayyads? So that was the question that kind of got me going, wait, how could this be? And in trying to answer that question, I found, well, Mawali doesn't just mean non-Arab convert to Islam. It can mean... Friend, cousin, supporter, freed slave, uh, uh, so many different things, and so I wanted to really parse out the way that this term "moali" can shift in its meaning, to to use the way it shifts to really try to understand the, that earliest Islamic society. So basically, coming coming to the idea that at first "moali" was this term that just meant we're all friends, we're all Muslims, we're all in it together. And then only later, as you get this more kind of hierarchical empire structure, do you get mowalieli as kind of like oh you're freed slaves oh you're non arabs oh you're outsiders
0: um there's a there's a joke for people who don't know this there's a joke about the Arabic language that any word means that thing. And it's opposite. If you look in the dictionary and with Mawali, it's actually literally true. It could mean like slave or master. So it's, it's one of these words that's very difficult to parse.
1: Absolutely. And I, I sometimes describe it as being like spouse, you know, where that could describe either person in that marriage partnership. Mawala can technically be the freed slave or the master, but I use it to mean usually to mean freed slave. So let's do a
0: little bit of basic work here because you talked about the first, the earliest dynasties, the the Umayyads and the Abbasids. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the period that your book covers, which is early Islam, uh, but it breaks that up into two segments uh, or two sub-periods, which is uh, something that is still, I think, developing uh, in the field to some degree. But you talk about the Islamic origins period, and the imperial elaboration period. Can you kind of go through that briefly and give people a sense of who the who we're talking about here and what are the dynamics uh, going on in the Islamic world?
1: Absolutely. And I will just say, I take some of these cues from my dissertation advisor, Fred Donner, who essentially divided early Islamic history into into these two periods. So Islamic origins, That's the period of, let's say, approximately 600 to 700 CE. This is the period that saw the career of the Prophet Muhammad, his childhood, his his milieu, um, the revelation of the Quran, the earliest Muslims. And I, following Fred Donner, view this period as very much a, a kind of an ecumenical period where Islam is this new religion that doesn't, you know, kind of spring forth fully formed into what we think of as Islam today. It was um, a piety movement that focused on monotheism, one God, piety. But within that rubric, kind of anyone could, could join. As long as you said, look, I'm going to be pious, I'm going to be, believe in God, I'll pray, um, could kind of join. And so this is a period where it's fairly open, it's fairly egalitarian. I don't want to say completely egalitarian, but fairly egalitarian in terms of who can join. Um, but then the second period, I'm calling the period of imperial elaboration, starts approximately 700 CE or thereabouts with the Umayyad caliph called Abdel malik and I think Abdul al-Malik is increasingly understood to be a really important political figure in Islamic history. Um, kind of non-specialists might be familiar with Abd al-Malik because he built the Dome of the Rock. And so that building in, in Jerusalem is kind of his uh, kind of a claim to fame. He also made some important imperial reforms regarding coinage, regarding the language of the bureaucracy. But the argument is by that time, by the time of Abdul malik The Islamic world had moved from this little piety movement that kind of accepted everyone into a state, um, a religion that was supported by a state apparatus that had to decide who to tax and who could live where and was doing censuses as it was trying to decide who is going to uh, receive resources versus who's going to be You know, the the resources are going to be extracted from them. And so had to kind of create these hierarchical structures that didn't necessarily exist in Muhammad's day or even the day of the very first um, Islamic conquests that are happening in like the, the mid to late 600s. So by 700, you see this imperial state that is saying, you are the conquering elite who receives the tax revenues you all over here are the conquered populations who must pay us taxes. And so we see Mawali as this kind of boundary between those two sections of like there are people who were maybe originally from the conquered populations, uh, maybe were peasants, maybe were enslaved, who say, oh, we want to become members of the imperial elite. We want to become Muslims. We want to become people who receive taxes rather than pay taxes. And the imperial elite kind of says, no, 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 no. you, not you, not you guys, you guys stay in your, in your fields and be, remain peasants, right? So those are the two kind of periods that I, I see.
0: Let's talk uh, for a moment about the, the challenges of doing history in this period where the sources are very slim. Many of them are quite late. Uh, well after even the period even the second period that you're talking about the imperial elaboration period you're talking about uh still being you know maybe a century or at least a half a century before anything is really written down that survives um uh, what were the what are the the kind of what's the challenge of of understanding the dynamics for freed slaves, these sort of marginalized groups that you're, you're writing about, which is a doubly, you know, doubly challenging, obviously, because these are not the sort of people who get written about very often. Uh, What were some of the challenges that you encountered? And specifically, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about using the Quran as a, a historic source, because it really is like, that's it to some degree for this, especially for the, the origins period. There's, really not very much else reliably from that period.
1: Yeah, this is one of the things I think is really fun about doing early Islamic history. And I will say there is a new new turn in the field of early Islamic studies, the documentary turn towards using pre-Islamic Arabic epigraphy and these inscriptions that you can find in Arabia and papyri. And I will just say, I don't do that kind of work, and there's a lot of great scholars who do that kind of work, um, but I was working only with literary sources. So if we're talking only about kind of written-down sources as opposed to inscriptions and coins and papyri and things like that, yeah, as you mentioned, it's, it's a very difficult field because the only document that scholars such as myself and Fred Donner and others think is pretty reliably from the 7th century, or at least much of it, is from the 7th century, is the Quran itself. And we don't have a, like a, a single uninterrupted manuscript of the Quran from the 7th century, but there are a lot of scraps and bits of the, of the Quran that people can find that are dated to roughly the 7th century. So we feel fairly confident that that's an early text, perhaps with a few later interpolations. But beyond the Quran... All the other sources that purport to talk about this early period were written later, centuries later usually, uh, or compiled later by authors who had agendas, who you know remembered certain things but forgot other things, um, who maybe translated archaic terms into terms that were more familiar to them, um, who reflected their own worldview. So one of the things I argue is that these, these later guys, and they were all guys, Um, didn't really understand what Maula Mawali meant in the very earliest period, because by their period, it meant some combination of freed slave and non-Arab Muslim. So you can also see how ethnicity and former enslavement get really conflated there. But for them, it meant non-Arab convert to Islam. And so that's just kind of what they assume it means when they're talking about the past. And, And I had to go through looking for little tiny clues that they had changed the sources sometimes, or that they had misunderstood what that term meant sometimes. But both of my main adv- uh, kind of advisors at the University of Chicago, Fred Donner and Wadad Al Qadi, told me that I should start with the Quran. And so there's this verse in the Quran that says very clearly they're talking about adopted children. And they're saying if you adopt a child, don't give that child your last name essentially. Don't claim that child to be your own biological child. Keep that child having the name of its father. It's actual biological father. So if I were to adopt a child, I wouldn't name my child. um, Okay. I have to think of a random name. I wouldn't name my child. uh, Elizabeth Jr. Elizabeth Jr. Elizabeth Urban's, you know, child, Elizabeth Jr. I would have to keep that kid's original name but then I could still treat them like they were my child, but I just couldn't rename them, right? But then the verse goes on to say, if you do not know their fathers, they are your brothers in religion and your mawali this Arabic term. And so I took this to read, if you're thinking about the Quran as a historical document, that's kind of capturing this early community as it's trying to figure out the boundaries it's fairly clear to me in the Quran that there are some clear theological boundaries, believe in God, pray, be pious. But in terms of the social boundaries and what does it mean to actually join this community? One of the things that the Quran talks about a lot is, you know, God gave us kinship so that we can organize our societies. Um, Women, for example, aren't required to wear a a kind of veil or cover around their close male relatives. Because it's thought, well, you're very closely related. You don't have to veil around your father, your brother. You can't marry them. They're not strangers to you. But then there's this question of, well, what if you are a slave, an enslaved person? I should say, what if you are an enslaved person who has been natally alienated, meaning you don't know who your family is, you don't know who your father is, can you join this society? Like, how do you know who you're related to, who you're not related to, you don't know? I argue that... This verse is essentially answering this question that the community had. Can these former slaves or freed slaves join this community or not? And that this verse is saying, yes, they can. They're your brothers in religion and your moeli, meaning your friends, your helpers, your supporters. They can join the community even though they don't know their, their kinship. So kind of creating the space for people of unknown origins to become full members of the community.
0: This hints at something which I remember learning. And early Islam was not the period that I studied, but I remember learning this in, for example, Fred Donner's class. Um, but it it hints at at an institution that that must have already been there to some degree in in pre-Islamic Arabian society. Is can we glean anything uh, from the Quran or, or any other? sources about this category of the way i always remember i the way i remember learning it was sort of auxiliaries of uh arab tribes who would you know be attached to a tribe but uh were not were not necessarily of that tribe they just somehow became attached to it can we can we is there anything that that we can say about sort of pre-islamic structure of of this institution
1: basically the short answer is I don't know, and I don't think anyone really knows. And partly that's because our sources for pre-Islamic Arabia are, for the most part, written in the Islamic period. And so it's hard to know what they're back projecting and what they're not. Um, perhaps some of this new work that's being done with epigraphy can help shed some light on it. But Patricia Crona, in her book, Roman Provincial and Islamic Law, she tries to kind of answer this question she investigates the classical Islamic law of wala, the Arabic word wala, which is like what happens when someone manumits a slave? What is the connection that the f- former slave still has with their former master? It's a legal bond that that in- is inherited for three, three generations. Okay, so there's this classical idea of if you manumit a slave, they kind of basically remain part of your family for a couple of generations. But then, okay, before... The classical Islamic law of that, there's pre-classical Islamic law, meaning all these Islamic lawyers were trying to figure out what to do with all these freed slaves. They didn't know. Uh, And so some of them said, oh, yeah, you can still sell your freed slave as though they were your slave. And other people are saying, no, you can't. And some people are saying, oh, you can manumit a slave and they become completely, totally free. They're not attached to you anymore at all. And others say, no, 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 you can't do that. The classical Islamic law is that you cannot Manumit a slave and then just let them go completely free that's actually thought to have been a, a a cruel thing to do to the former slave to cut them off completely from society but anyway so there's a classical
0: law and it's i i so I, I don't want to interrupt sorry elizabeth i no, don't mean to interrupt no, no, but, no, but, no, i mean to no. to give people context that that really is like you're casting somebody out to cut them off completely in a tribal society like that, you are leaving them with no recourse, no protection from predation. I mean, it's, it's a really, it would really be an awful thing to do.
1: It would be an awful thing to do. And one of the great things about, I think, studying history is that it challenges some of our preconceived notions about like, what does freedom mean? And in this society, if you are quote unquote free from all social bonds, you are going to Starve to death. You're going to die of exposure. You're not going to. You're going to be a houseless person. You're going to have no resources. And so, the actual the Arabic word for a slave, I should say, an enslaved person who is freed without this kind of kinship like bond of maula. The Arabic word for that is sa'iba, which means a camel that you've just let wander free alone in the desert basically. Right. So it's kind of thought to have been this cruel thing to do. Um, And so it was, it was disallowed. Absolutely. So before the the classical Islamic law, there's this pre-classical period of trying to figure out what we should do with this. But then Patricia Crona argues, well, let's look at how Greek people handled freed slaves. Let's look at how Roman law handled freed slaves. How let's look at how Jewish law handled freed slaves and basically argues that Islam didn't make up this category of what to do with the freed slave, that it's kind of derived from a, not official Roman law, but Roman provincial law. That is, the law that was, the Romans kind of had this universalizing law that everyone had to follow, but then they also allowed local localities to have their own kind of laws, as long as they didn't clash with the Roman universal law. And that it's one of these provincial Roman laws that looks almost exactly like wala, what we think of as wala. But that's a big way of saying, I don't know that we really know. It was a tribal society. I think it was this... uh, uh." Maula, really, like the Arabic term really just means someone that you have a social connection to. So like, that can be a friend, that can be your cousin, that can be your your heir... That can be your master, your are in flavor. Ah, so I just don't know how we're supposed to even figure out what this term really meant in pre-Islamic Arabia. Long story short. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: the the, the the sum up. We really don't know. Um, why, not, why don't we get in a little bit to the book and maybe you can talk about these categories. Uh, I mean, obviously you've talked uh, uh, quite a bit about uh, Maulo or the Mawali, uh, but you're also talking in the book, you write about uh, male and female slaves, you write about uh, concubines, you write about the sons of slave mothers. Um, and and really, I think you're you you draw out this point that it's maybe useful to talk about a category of unfree persons rather than uh, kind of e- these discrete cat- you know kind of ca- classifications. Uh, of people can you can you talk a little bit about the status that these people had and or these these folks had and and why it makes sense to talk about them as, as this kind of general broad category of unfree peoples
1: sure, um, so yeah, one of the things I do in my book is I kind of compare and contrast and 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 analyze side by side three different groups that struck me as being in this kind of gray area or what I call liminal uh, area of, they're not quite fully, you know, elite members of the society, but they're not cast out of the society either. And these are the Mowali, which I mostly talk about in terms of being freed slaves, but then also enslaved women. And I'll just say as an aside, my current research is actually on freed women because my book doesn't really talk about freed women very much, but my book talks about enslaved women, who in elite Islamic society often performed one of two roles that have received a lot of attention, one of which is as concubine mother, which is not something and not a category that we have in kind of Western history, which is an enslaved woman whom the enslaver may legally have sex with if she becomes pregnant with his child, and bears his child, and he acknowledges it as his own child, that child is freeborn. That child is legitimate, a full heir of the master's estate, and the the woman who is enslaved will become automatically freed when her master dies. And he can free her before then too, but automatically she becomes free when her master dies. So it's kind of like she's enslaved, but she's also already got her ticket to future freedom, Uh, by having her her enslaver's child and she gets a few other depending on the law school a few other perks um, like not having to do as much uh, menial household labor Um, and then the other kind of enslaved women i study are concubine uh, excuse me the other type of enslaved women that i study are courtesans courtesans were enslaved occasionally freed women but often enslaved women who were trained from an early age to be able to dance, sing, play the lute, recite poetry, um, among other things, and to be entertaining um, kind of luxury performers at, at elite soirees. You might, if you're familiar with the geisha phenomenon, they're not exactly the same as geisha, but they're, you might have that in mind. And they were enslaved on the one hand, but they could also be fabulously popular, wealthy, and famous, on the other hand. And so, you know, again, are they, are they, when, I think when people think of slave or enslaved person, they have in mind an extremely abject living situation, not, not simply a legal category, but a really bad living situation marked by violence, degradation, harsh labor. And that wasn't always the case for, some elite what it quote quote unquote elite slaves in early Islamic history. So that's where I think "unfree" captures the idea that these women did not have full legal autonomy. They certainly were still um, subject to the sexual, physical, emotional violence of their enslavers. Um, their livelihoods depended on their enslavers. And yet on the other hand, they had some of the trappings of what we might call a, a nice life. Um, nice things, nice living situation. And so unfree, I think, captures this idea a little more clearly than slave free or enfraved free of the complexities of that living situation. Um, And then the, the final category is the sons of these concubine mothers, who I argue that at first, in the first decades of Islamic history, inhabited a similarly- Unclear, gray area, liminal situation as Moali—that is to say, a non-Arab convert to Islam or a freed slave um, who would become a Muslim—and the child born to a slave mother might both have been treated as second-class citizens. Oh, you're not really Arab. Oh, you're not really Muslim. And yet, the children of enslaved mothers and, and enslaved mothers and those own mothers' enslavers, right? So these kind of Arab Muslim masters or enslavers and their enslaved women, those children managed to make a case for themselves as being full Arabs, full Muslims, and eventually became the emperors, essentially, of the whole Islamic world. So they kind of successfully rebranded themselves as fully belonging, whereas the Mowali, at the same time are being treated as, oh, well, now you guys are the ones who maybe don't belong y'all are the non-Arabs, y'all are the foreigners, y'all are the ones who have enslavement in your background, who have non-Islamic religions in your background. Um, And so I was really interested in these twin trajectories of two groups who begin in this very liminal position, and one of them kind of gains a full insider status, and the other one kind of remains in this, "Mm, are you really a Muslim or are you not? Or did your grandfather worship fire Uh, and these kind of things that Moali you're sometimes thought of as being, oh, you're kind of a crypto-manichaean or something like that.
0: I always wanted somebody to accuse me of being a (laughs) crypto-Zoroastrian or something. like a very interesting category. Um, This is my fault, really, because I've I've lapsed into it, but um, we've kind of treated... Islam as all one thing so far in this discussion. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the distinctions between, uh, you know, I think people are, are familiar with the the different Sunni legal schools. Um, obviously, the the distinction between Sunni and Shia, I think, is relevant here. One of the arguments about Ali, for example, was always that he was too nice to the Mawali or nice to the Mawali, maybe too nice, depending on your perspective. Um, so so that may be relevant. Can you talk a little bit about some of these internal uh, distinctions in the ways that these, these communities were regarded?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's such an important point because even still today in our pre-podcast chat, we were talking about the continued need for education around what is Islam in, you know, the world today in the, in the university setting today, there's a lot of ignorance and there's a lot of treating Islam as a monolith, like it's one thing, there's this one law, it's very strict, it's, you know, uh, all Muslim women are X, all Muslims are Y, and it's very important to not treat uh, this, you know, 1,400, more than 1,400 long historical religion as a, as a monolith. Certainly, in the period I study, I mean one of my arguments, and this is not this is not an argument that I think is well accepted by um many believing muslims uh about their own past, but it's a kind of a maybe a more historically oriented view of the early Islamic past, which is that early islam certainly there was not one islam i my what I'm trying to say is I think my view is that The earliest Muslim community was in this huge, dynamic, creative process of trying to figure out who they are, what are the laws. There's so much debate, even before the four canonical Sunni law schools get, you know, crystallized, so many more law schools, so many more, you know, debates. You know, there's all these rich, wonderful debates happening among early lawyers, early theologians, early politicians. Um, early Hadith scholars who were just grappling with these questions of what does it mean to belong to the community? Can this person belong to the community? What about that person? And yeah, every thinker essentially, or every community has its own different answer to that question. So you find some early, and this is really before the time when what we think of as Sunni and what we think of as Shi has really crystallized. Some of the important moments are happening during the period I study, like this kind of debate over the succession to Muhammad, Ali's murder, the murder of his son Al-Hussein, that was a real catalyst for the Shi split. But there's no, what I'm trying to say is there are no hard and fast boundaries between any of these communities at this time. It's all one big collaborative exercise in trying to figure out who they are. Um, and so, for example, you find some early Shia groups who brag about their descent from only free women. Whereas, oh, some of those, you know, uh, uh, caliphs, those Umayyad caliphs, they're descended from enslaved women. And so you get this kind of chauvinism from Shia. And the Shia are supposed to be the ones who are, you know, pro Moali, So it's all one big soup as people are trying to figure out, well, who does belong to this community and how do they belong?
0: So I want to come back to... Abdel Malik, uh, because he's such an important figure who probably doesn't get the emphasis that that is warranted. You already mentioned him and and talked about him uh, uh, a bit earlier in the interview, but he really is like the pivot point for this community forming itself into a real empire, standardizing language, even, you know, things as basic as language. He builds the the dome of the rock which has some of the earliest uh i would say sectarian inscriptions on it in it uh things that say quite clearly this is not christianity whatever you think this is this is it's something else so maybe you could talk a bit more about abdamic and and why he occupies this place in uh, in islamic history and what it means what his kind of reign means and why it's a pivot point for these uh, sort of the unfree groups with these marginalized uh, to one extent or another groups that you're writing about
1: yeah um abdul malik is such a fantastically interesting figure abdul malik reigned as umayyad caliph or emperor from 685 to 705 ce and based in damascus syria and before Abdel malik the earliest Umayyads seem to have styled themselves sometimes explicitly after the Byzantines. So their coinage looks like Byzantine coinage. A palace that one of the earlier caliphs built for himself looks a lot like a Byzantine palace. And and this earlier caliph, Muawiyah, he had really close ties with a Christian Arab tribe called Kelb, And so he... He is known for having Christians in his army, Christians in his family, Christians in his administration. And so some people, and and there's Christian writers at the time who basically say the Umayyads are our friends, Muawiyah is our friend. Um, And so we have this question of, did Muawiyah think of himself as kind of a, did, did he still think of Islam as kind of a, Christians can be part of this community too, or we, well, we all believe in the same God, so let's all participate together. Abdul Malik, who lived a generation later, uh, uh, kind of two generations later, the generations are, it's hard to put hard and fast numbers on the generations. Well, I think of him as Abdul Malik lived two generations later. He is changing the coinage to not have a a figure, a standing figure that looks like the Byzantine emperor, but only to have Arabic script on it. Um, Um, He's the one who builds the Dome of the Rock that says, you know, don't say there's three say there's one, meaning, you know, don't say there's a Trinity, say there's only one God. So kind of a deliberately anti-Trinitarian, anti, not maybe not anti-Christian, but just like we're not Christians, right? Muslims are not Christians. And one of the things that he does in his time, and this is an ongoing, it's not like it all happens like a flash under uh, Abdul-Malik, but he starts the ongoing process of translating the bureaucracy, all the tax documents, basically, that had previously been in Greek, if you're in kind of like Syria area or Egypt area or Persian, if you're out in Iraq, Iran, they had those documents translated into Arabic. And here you see some of the, the friction between the Arab Christian community of Syria that had previously apparently been part of the kind of ruling elite under the early Umayyads. They're Arabs, they speak Arabic, they're Christians, so what? That's okay. They believe in God, that's fine. But now we have Abdel Malik saying, I don't trust essentially these Arab Christians to be in charge of my bureaucracy anymore. I would like to have, they, they know Greek, I don't know Greek. Maybe they're translating it wrong. Maybe they're putting in secret messages. We, you know, Maybe they're trying to undermine the state from within. We need to get all that bureaucracy Translated into Arabic because I, monolingual Abdul Malik, presumably monolingual Abdul Malik, can read those documents and can have a little bit more control. Right. And so then my argument there is that people have long understood that the Mawali were involved in bureaucracy, in especially the kind of late in my period. And one of my arguments is well, why use the Mawali for that? Is that there. They're this, in this liminal position where they know Arabic, or at least they're learning Arabic, but they're also under kind of direct state supervision and state control. So if they do try to, let's say, put a secret message into a, a document, the caliphs can simply have that scribe killed, you know, and and without ha- having any kind of repercussions because those people are freed slaves, they're natally alienated, they've been conquered, uh, whereas the Arab Christians are a free population, they have... Kinship networks. You don't want to cause an uprising amongst the, the Arab Christians. So that's one of the things I'm 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 arguing there. But all of that's happening under under Abdul Malik. Uh, we need to change the refor- uh, the coinage. We need to change the the language of the bureaucracy. And my argument there is that Abdul Malik had just won, or he, he was involved in, and then won something that historians call the second civil war of Islamic history. This was a really pivotal turning point in Islamic history. The second civil war is when Hussein, who is Prophet Muhammad's grandson and Ali's son dies, is martyred during a battle in the second civil war. This is a time when another elite Arab Christian in Arabia says, actually I'm caliph. Uh, Ibn Zubayr says, I'm caliph. Those Umayyads are wicked. They're actually not very good Muslims. I'm a really good Muslim. I live in you know Arabia. I'm I'm I should be caliph. And then Abdul Malik. So we have these three. We kind of a proto Shia with Al Hussein. We have some kind of piety movement under Ibn Zubayr. And then we have this already entrenched imperial elite under Abdul Malik. And but they fought this terrible civil war. And I think Abdul Malik is now trying to say like, look. I get to decide, or like my government gets to decide who is a Muslim and who's not a Muslim and who's an Arab and who's not an Arab. And I'm not trying to say that they were totally successful in that, right? You can't actually put such simple categorizations onto people's identities and their communities. But I think Abdul Malik is trying to gain control over this community ever having just kind of by the skin of his teeth won this civil war.
0: This offers, I mean, you, you talk about this in the uh, later part of the book, but it, 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 in a similar way to I think the the distinction that you're making between um, concubines and courtesans, there is an opportunity in this, as you mentioned, for uh, Mawali to kind of improve their station by serving as scribes, being you know part of the bureaucracy. Can you talk a bit about what that does for this community and and how do we kind of emerge from this um this period where all these things are being figured out what's is there sort of a resolution at some point in in terms of uh their status and and something more recognizably you know what we might recognize uh, as as more like the Islamic society that we we see today
1: yeah, it's a great question so Um, Yeah, I I basically argue that both courtesans and sometimes translated as scribes, they were really more than scribes. They were bureaucrats. Think about that. They were working for the government, doing all the taxes. Think of them as like the tax, the tax IRS guys, right? That both of these two groups were of were either enslaved or of enslaved origins. The uh, courtesans were usually enslaved. The bureaucrats were usually freed people. That both of them were in a really complicated position because they, as we mentioned before, could have some trappings of a really nice life. They could have, you know, fancy, a fancy house. They could make a lot of money. They could be kind of uh, have the ear of the caliph, be a kind of in close proximity to the caliph. So in some ways they were really powerful but they had to use that the power that they had they got from linguistic expertise from being able to recite Arabic poetry from being able to master Arabic poetry from being able to master the Arabic tax tax documents their power all came from I am a master and an expert of this topic in Arabic history but I, I suggest that but they had to use that language ability really carefully because they were sub they were uh they had to use that language ability really carefully because they were unfree because if they got caught again talk, talking about trying to send a secret message or even just trying to express their own dissatisfaction with something uh if they said something against their own uh patron or enslaver they could Be killed without really any consequence, or be be punished harshly, so that they're having to kind of use their linguistic expertise to walk a very fine line between power on the one hand and vulnerability on the other hand. So you see this carry over a little bit into a slightly later period um, where you still find there's a there's a lost letter by a really famous. A writer called Al Jahiz, a ninth century writer called Al Jahiz, who it's a missing uh, epistle on the Moali and how much I wish we had this. But I know from reading some of his other stuff that he basically says the Moali in his day, in the ninth century, are people who claim to kind of have the best of both worlds, the Arabic world and the Persian world. They have all the great cultural history from Persian history, Sasanian history, and they have all the cultured, you know, fine manners of the Persians, but they're also masters in Arabic and they're Muslims. And so trying to basically say, we are experts in everything. We have great culture, we have great learning, we have great knowledge, we have great religion. Um, and so I think that maybe the through line there is the Mawali and the bureaucracy are, you know, their, their whole claim to fame is on their expertise their cultural expertise, their linguistic expertise. So I, I think that that kind of transitions later into the Abbasid period. It's kind of like a a, a distant forerunner for something that will later be known as the Shorubiyah movement, where Persianate and Arab, uh, Persian and Arab Muslims are kind of fighting for like who has the cultural supremacy. And Moali are kind of saying, hey, we're both, we, we, we win, we, we have both of it. Um, But then in terms of the the salience of this term, moali, eventually really disappears. There have been some scholars who study the Abbasid period, so we're mostly talking like 9th and 10th centuries um, and later, who argue that this this categorization of, oh, are you a maula or the moali acting as a collective, that kind of disappears. It stops to matter so much about people's names or their designations. If you look at who's writing scholarship no one's identifying themselves as a mawla anymore. Uh, no one is saying, oh, this group, the mawali, are, are dominating the bureaucracy. So something about that term seems to have lost its salience. My guess is simply as Islam became more and more and more cosmopolitan and ecumenical, that that distinction just disappeared. And then the term persists as a legal term, meaning freed slave. And so... You know, it still has this legal term. If you say, "Oh, you're my maula," it might mean, "Oh, you're my freed slave," or "Oh, you're my master," or "You're my my former enslaver." But it kind of loses salience as a cultural term. But one little fun fact I'll end on that question is when I was doing interviews and looking for a job, doing interviews regarding this book, but it was still just a project at the time. A scholar said, "Oh, in Hindi, we still have this term 'mavali.'" And it means like the seedy Muslim underbelly of organized crime criminals in India. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> like this, okay.
1: Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, so the term still has
0: so yeah, still has it has, meaning, right? It's Got resonance. The sure. so, yeah. Wow. That that's I love that. I love when you can pick out a little uh, uh, anachronism from from how a word gets taken into another language that's so cool. Why don't we kind of close and you can take this in in you know any direction you would like. But but where would you like to see the scholarship in this field kind of go from here and and you know we haven't even there's so much that we haven't talked about obviously people should buy the book. Um uh, but I mean you know I feel like we haven't really gotten into you know differences between the male and female slave experience, which you touch on in the book, or, or you know other kind of core issues like that. But but as you kind of uh, you know conclude concluded your book, what 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 would you like to see in terms of uh, the progress that is made in, in studying these aspects of Islamic history?
1: I'm so very glad you asked that question because one of the things I was going to say is that we haven't really talked enough, I think, about gender. And as I mentioned earlier, there has been this documentary turn in my field, meaning people are moving away from studying these kind of problematic late literary texts that were written in the ninth century to study the 7th century, and they're now using epigraphy and and, um, numismatics and and papyrology and things. And I think that's great. However, I do worry about reading those sources naively, that is to say, um without realizing that kind of interrogating, well, who's writing these? What are their ideologies Uh, and particularly gender? I think a lot of people still forget about gender. I think there are a few scholars who are working, doing really fantastic work on gender in early Islamic history, but not too many. And, and unfortunately I will say that the field of Islamic studies and Middle Eastern studies um, in my experience tends to be a fairly conservative field not meaning politically conservative, but meaning they don't really want to change the methodology too much, and if you start saying things like, "Oh, I think we should employ feminist historical methodologies or um you know what happens if we apply a post colonial theory to this or whatever people in my field sometimes get really worried about that and re- reject that and say i don't want to, I don't want the name Foucault to be anywhere near my <laughs> Middle Eastern studies. you know what I mean." And so, but I think that there's still a lot of value and a lot of richness to be gained from the late literary sources and also the the documentary sources, but especially the late literary sources that looks at things in terms of gender, racial or ethnic identity. And I think the challenge and, and status, like enslavement, freedom, I think the challenge is that it's so important not to let our current ideas about gender, feminism, anti-racism, whatever, color what we see in the past, but instead to let it shape the questions we ask about the past, but then be very open to seeing, well, what does this past, what does this text tell me about gender, right? You you kind of have to have a very open-ended question. There's a lot of people who are studying race, for example, right now, and you cannot, simply cannot assume that our categories of race are going to be found anywhere in that text, but you can still ask, well, okay, so but what does this text indicate to us about racial thinking? Is there any? Is there not? What what are the categories? So I think there's still a lot of room to ask questions about gender, sexuality, um, using feminist history and uh, tools from gender studies to really pay attention to the experiences of um, women and eunuchs, and people who maybe are gender nonconforming, like the or these people, who are kind of what we might... Oh, it's so hard to know what's the modern term for them. Men who wore women's clothing. Um, you know, were they trans? Were they cross-dress? It's so hard to know. But to attend to them and to ask questions about them so that we don't forget about how important their experiences were in shaping islamic history um and i will say i've gotten some pushback from from the field from scholars in the field saying uh islamic studies doesn't you know mesh well with gender studies or early early islamic studies has no room for quote-unquote gender gender in islam yeah right right (laughs) quote-unquote gender studies i I just disagree i think there's a lot of room to be had for that kind of analysis so i hope people will continue to study women enslaved people non-elites Um, to the best of their ability.
0: Elizabeth Urban, again, the book is Conquered Populations in Early Islam, Non-Arab Slaves and the Sons of Slave Mothers. You guys should uh, go check it out. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks again. It was fantastic to talk to you and uh, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Derek. It was so great to see you.
0: Okay. Uh, Once again, I want to thank Elizabeth Urban for coming on the show her book, again, is Conquered Populations in Early Islam, uh, in addition to just being uh, fun to talk to her again after uh, several years. It, I think the book is fantastic. Uh, it is a badly needed uh, look at some groups that don't get a lot of attention in the Islamic sources and if this is, if early Islam is a period that interests you in early Islamic society then I would absolutely urge you to check out the book. It's available everywhere, it's available in paperback, and ebook. book uh, it's not one of these uh, incredibly pricey academic books that I know uh, are out there but you can you could definitely pick it up and um, I think it will be uh of great great interest to some of you uh, I also want to thank uh, producer Jake, those of you who uh, uh, are American Prestige listeners, I want to thank our producer Jake who uh, helped me out here with the audio you may have noticed that the interview sounds a lot nicer than my <laughs> intro and outro bumps uh, and that's because Jake worked on the interview so thanks to him and uh, that's it uh, please do check out Foreign Exchanges if you haven't already www.foreinexchanges.news uh, and uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.